In your Bibles as you take your seat, brethren, Revelation 14, let me just say a few things about it by way of introduction. If you remember chapter 14, or let me put it this way, chapters 12 to 14 form the fourth of seven cycles that describe the time between Jesus' first and second comings. So obviously chapter 14 is the tail end of that fourth cycle. Chapter 12 describes a male child, dragon, and woman. Because the dragon could not devour the male child, he goes after the woman and her offspring. The male child is Jesus, the dragon is Satan, and the woman and her offspring is the church. Chapter 13 describes the way in which the dragon seeks to destroy the woman through two beasts, which we've identified Satan's attacks, both through persecution, the first beast, and deception, the second beast, or the false prophet. Chapter 14 describes the preservation of the elect who bear the Father's name on their forehead and the judgment of the non-elect who bear the mark of the beast on their forehead. So everybody's marked on their foreheads. You have the 144,000, that's the elect, the rest of the non-elect who follow Satan. Chapter 14 can be divided into three related visions. And unfortunately, in our English translations, they're translated variously, even though the Greek text is identical with regards to all three of them. That is, verses 1, 6, and 14, they all begin with the same construction, and you can translate it, then I saw, or then I looked. Um, And so we find three related visions in the chapter, and we've been actually considering them Accordingly, last week we saw the first, that brings us now to the second, beginning at verse verse 6. And then God willing, next week we'll come to verse 14 and finish the chapter. Just keep in mind this one chapter and it's one unit. Chapter 14 goes with chapters 12, 13, and 14. So it's really describing events that are happening simultaneously. And uh, as with all of these cycles, it ends with Jesus coming in judgment and salvation. So we'll be seeing that again today and next week. So within this section, verses 6 to 14, uh, uh, 13, I'm sorry, we find fundamentally three angels and their messages. Three angels and their messages. You can see them right there. Verse 1 or verse 6. And then verse 8, and then verse 9, a third angel. And then at the tail end of this section, in verse 12 and 13, you have a voice from heaven, which is really just an encouragement in light of all the judgment that's been just previously described. So we'll look at it like that under those four headings. The three angels and their messages, angel 1, angel 2, angel 3, and then a voice from heaven. And we'll see, brethren, as strong And as terrible uh, are the judgments described, the salvation and the glory that awaits God's people in verses 12 and especially 13 is equally as glorious. Heaven and hell are the themes tonight. From Revelation 14, notice beginning at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, 
because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Okay, that's the first three angels and their messages, and then you have this voice from heaven. It's as if John can, can, cannot keep himself from ending this section with some good news. Verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Three angels and a voice from heaven. Notice angel number one, verses six and seven. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This angel fundamentally represents the church of God who's been commissioned by the Lamb to preach the gospel to the world. And you can see the uh, objects of the gospel concern every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. In short, what our Savior commissioned his church to go and say in the end of Matthew is here described in a different way. Go into the whole world and make disciples of all the nations. Now, this everlasting gospel is to be preached, if you notice, to those who dwell on earth. And uh, those people are, as I've said, taken from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. In other words, brethren, this gospel is everlasting because it was decreed in the eternal counsels of God and it's to be preached and proclaimed to all people throughout the whole world. This is a universal gospel for all people. Verse 7 contains both the content and motive of the message. The content, fear God and give him glory. The motive, for the hour of his judgment has come. And then you find further content or exhortation, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. In other words, it's against the backdrop of the judgment of God that sinners are exhorted to fear, glorify, and worship God. So we find the term gospel here is used in a little more broader sense so as to include fearing God and also the judgment of God that's soon to come. In fact, you find something similar if you think back to Paul's statement in Romans 2.16 when he says, In the day when God would judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. In other words, his gospel message considered in the broader sense included the judgment of God. So in the narrow sense, the gospel of God is the message about Jesus. That's the good news. But brethren, for there to be good news of necessity, there has to be bad news by which is contrasted. You've heard me say, say before, 
If there's no bad news, the good news is but news. The gospel is good news in light of the fact that there's judgment. And so we find that there's judgment proclaimed, and then there's salvation offered. And both of those have to go together. Now, to be fair and to be honest, here we find that the content of the message of this everlasting gospel isn't explicitly said to be Jesus and him crucified. If you notice, verse 7, fear God and give him glory and then worship him. So we could say what they're exhorted to do is to fear, glorify, and worship God. Now, brother, let me be very plain. Nobody's saved by those things. They're saved unto those things. But because they're saved unto those things, it necessarily implies believing in the gospel. Fear God. Glorify God. Worship God. The whole reason why wrath is coming is because they don't fear God. They don't glorify God and they don't worship God. In fact, we're going to see in a moment the opposite is true. They actually worship the beast and his image. It's similar, though not identical, to the concept that judgment in the end will be based on works. Because works prove our faith. And so here, fearing God, glorifying God, and worshiping God are the evidences of faith. The everlasting gospel, maybe I can put it like this. The everlasting gospel, when believed, results in a sinner becoming a saint who fears God, glorifies God, and worships God. And one reason why they come to believe in Jesus and thus fear, glorify, and worship God is because of the judgment that's coming upon the world. Brethren, simply put, if you don't preach about the wrath of God, you're not preaching the gospel of God. Now, again, don't conflate or confuse those because, strictly speaking, the gospel is the good news. But nevertheless, you're not preaching Paul's gospel. You're not preaching... This gospel of the, the first angel's gospel, if the wrath of God and the anger of God and the justice of God have no place in the message. So we find that in the midst of all that's taking place in chapters 12 and 13 in the first part of 14, there's a gospel preached on earth. Now, just go in your mind for a second to the first part of chapter 14 that we saw last week. That was largely describing God's people who are in heaven, though it includes those who are on earth. Remember, because they're standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. That's heaven. Now we're back on earth. And what's on earth but the preaching of the gospel? Brethren, why is the church left on earth? Well, here's one reason. So she can proclaim the everlasting gospel. In light of the judgment of God, that sinners would repent from their sins, believe on Christ, and fear, glorify, and worship God. All right, that's the first angel. Notice the second, verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, you probably know that the first time Babylon is mentioned is back in Genesis 11 as the Tower of Babel. 
And every time Babel or Babylon is mentioned from that point onward, it's typically a symbol of man's pride and rebellion. And so here, most evidently, we know that by Babylon is this godless, wicked world. This godless, wicked world controlled by the dragon and his two beasts. And here we also find, by way of a prophecy, that this great city will soon fall. And the reason she will fall is because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That great city that boasted of her own ability, and again, you can go back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and see the origin of it. From that point forward, all the way, Babylon is is symbolic of rebellion and man's pride and wickedness. And so here the entire world system is wrapped up in this one great city. Man with all of his pride and arrogance. Man with all of his supposed wisdom, strength, and power. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Now the phrase, the wine of the wrath of her fornication, is a difficult phrase to interpret. Uh, I mean, fundamentally we understand what it means, but what is meant by the wine of the wrath? We know by fornication it's meant spiritual, moral fornication, which includes physical fornication, but it's really idolatry, right? Because we just, uh, we will see here in a minute that those who are part of this great city, everybody who takes the mark of the beast who isn't Christian, every non-Christian, let me put it this way, is a citizen of this great city. And they worship the God, little g, of the city, which is Satan. And that's idolatry. And that's why they're called to repentance and called to fear and to glorify and to worship the one and true God. But again, what is meant by the phrase, the wine of the wrath of her fornication? Well, it means one of two things. One, it means the fornication, the the idolatry that brings the wrath of God. And so in this view, wrath here is meant God's wrath. And that's very Possible, and I would probably even say likely. In other words, this city is going to be judged because she's enticed her inhabitants to commit fornication, that is idolatry, that warrants or attracts the wrath of God. In fact, we find a, a similar phrase in Ephesians 5 6, where Paul exhorts us not to partake of idolatry of this fornication um, and to have nothing to do with those who do because of these things, Paul says, this covetousness and idolatry and other things that he mentions, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so uh, here we find a similar phrase or at least likely find a similar phrase in that the city is going to be judged because 
She's enticed her inhabitants to live in such a way that deserves and warrants the wrath of God. Or, and this is the way that most translations, the newer translations have it, they don't translate the word wrath, wrath, but passion. And so it's not the wrath of God, but it's the passion, the enticement of her fornication. But either way, brethren, it all comes down basically to the same thing. The city falls, the city is destroyed because she's enticed her inhabitants, those who take the mark of the beast, non-saved people, to commit fornication with her God, Satan and the beast, and the first beast's image, and not to worship or to turn their back upon the one and true God. All right, so you have, first of all, this first angel who has an everlasting message. Yes, it's a message that's, that contains judgment, but it's a, a clarion, clear, universal call to repentance. Turn from your sins, turn from your spiritual uh, fornication and idolatry and fear God, glorify God, and worship God. And then here's another incentive for you to turn from your wicked ways. The very city of which you pledge allegiance. The very city within which you dwell. This world. This great city. Will one day fall upon your head. Alright. Notice thirdly. Verse 9 to 11. And here we come to no doubt the uh, most sober of the three messages. We, thought we saw judgment under the first message. The first angel. Right. Repent because the judgment of God is coming. We saw it in the second one, in the collapse of the city. But now the imagery is really dropped and just very straightforwardly the judgment is described. The third angel proclaims a message of judgment, which in fact has three parts, or I want to suggest three parts to it. And they, and they each fall within the three verses. Verses 9 there's the object of this judgment. Verse 10, the nature of this judgment. Verse 11, the duration. First, its object. That is the object or objects of this judgment. Verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. In other words, every person who has the mark will be judged and will drink the wrath of God in eternal hell. Every person who receives the mark will be the object of God's judgment, which refers to every unsaved person. Brethren, there are not people who are unsaved who don't have the mark. See, that's a, that's a misconception of modern-day interpretations. That there's some who take the mark and there's some who don't take the mark, and they're both non-Christians. Remember, the mark isn't something physical. The mark on their forehead and hand means they bear the image of the beast. They act like him. They, they pledge allegiance to this world, brethren. They're citizens of the great city, whereas Christians are citizens of Mount Zion. There's really a clash or a story, if you will, of two cities here. Brethren, uh, uh, Augustine's treatise on, on two cities is taken from the Bible. There are two cities, and we're all citizens of one or the other. And all the citizens 
of the great city of Babylon will be judged because every single citizen, irrespective of age, irrespective of nationality, irrespective of social, social or educational status, they all have the same mark of the beast on their forehead and on their hand. Regardless of where or when they live, this isn't just something that's going to happen in the future, brother. This is describing mankind. All unsaved men bear the mark of the, of the beast. They all pledge allegiance to this world. Because it's only and it's all of those who bear the mark who are judged. Only those who bear the mark are judged. Nobody else is judged. Everybody is judged who bears the mark. All right, that's the objects of the judgment. Notice its nature, verse 10. He himself, that is the bearer of the mark, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Brother, how can you even begin to grapple? How do you... How can we even begin to explain these terms? Sometimes I think it's best to just read them humbly and quietly, put our hands over our mouths, and sit down and weep. And tremble for those who bear the mark of the beast. They're going to drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength. It's a playoff of the, of, the, of the concept of full strength wine. This is, this is strong wine, brethren, that they're going to drink. Full strength. It's the cup of his indignation, of, of God's hatred and wrath. Now, the nature of it can really be summarized in this next term. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It's possible to kind of somewhat simplistically summarize the nature of this judgment, the nature of hell, by the term tormented. Tormented. Brethren, as much as modern man hates the notion and as difficult as it is at times for the most sanctified among us to grasp, hell is nothing more or less than eternal conscious torment. That's what it is. It's eternal conscious torment of body and soul. And you find all of that alluded to in this, in this verse. Now the fire, uh, the fire and brimstone can be literal or figurative. Uh, it's not a liberal notion to suggest it's, it's figurative. Because remember, whatever the nature of this fire is, it doesn't consume its objects it tortures its objects, and it does so in body and soul. This is fire that torments, that causes pain and suffering. That's what torment means, right? To torment is to cause 
to suffer or to endure pain. This is, this is torment of the body and the soul. So whatever fire it is, it's fire that torments both body and soul. It, it, it represents intense because we know what fire is, right? We know how painful fire is. Brother, that, is there anything more painful to the body than fire? It represents intense physical and spiritual suffering. That's what it, 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 it signifies. Thus, when we read, they shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This doesn't refer to literal drinking nor literal wine. It simply means the wrath of God shall be experienced personally and inwardly. Just as if we drank wine. When you drink wine, it affects you. It goes down into your body. And this wine that the wicked will drink, this wrath of God that the wicked will drink in full strength. Brother, this is full strength. Undiluted. Will be taken down as it were into the soul and it will not only cause suffering on the inside, but on the inside. And so it's possible by, by drinking the wrath of God, it underscores the inward or spiritual slash mental sufferings of hell torment. And then the fire, the outward. That's possible. Or at least that's what Simon Kissmaker said. He said this, by drinking the cup of God's wrath... They burn inwardly as it affects their soul day and night. And outwardly as they experience burning fire and smell the stench of sulfur forever. That's brimstone. All right, I want to come back to that here in a moment. But let's move on to number 11 or, or letter C in my outline of uh, Verse 11, and its duration. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. This verse clearly describes the torments of hell as eternal. Forever and ever, for all time, their torment continues. Okay, and so it goes back to what I said in those three terms that are essential to define hell. Eternal, conscious, torment. If you, def if you deny either of those three, then you have an unorthodox view of hell. And brother, there's a lot of people who have an unorthodox view of hell. And it depends how, how unorthodox it is, whether or not you're even a Christian. Um, I think personally, it's my opinion, that a man can be confused if he is so, so sincerely about, about the nature of these torments. I think of a man, for example, like John Stott, who towards the end of his life, believed that hell was um, the, the annihilation of the sinner. So he denied the eternality of hell torment. Which is a serious error. Um, he never really kind of, he never like taught that, but he always kind of left the door open to that. But he did so for exegetical reasons. Which, which he erred in, but nevertheless he was sincere in his attempt to try to find out what the Bible taught. 
But those who reject the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, not because of honest error, but because they either think it portrays God uncomely, or else they don't believe, they, they, they throw away the authority of Scripture and elevate the philosophy of man in its place. They're not Christian. I uh, just happened to be providentially watching today, uh, yesterday and today, some recent lectures at a conference in Atlanta. And it's uh, one of the big black church type things. So they have all of the uh, well-known, educated, black uh, theological teachers uh, gathered there for a couple of days in Atlanta to torture, distort, and misuse the Holy Scriptures. It's a tragedy, brother. Just makes your heart ache. All that education and so much ignorance. And it's ironic because before each talk, they have a different panel for each topic, and they go down the, the panel, and everybody sticks out their little chest. And, well, I got my BA here, and my master's here, and my three doctorates here, and now I teach here, and I'm this and I'm that. And then they begin to open their mouth, and the verse of Romans 1 comes to mind professing to be wise, they've made themselves fools. Brother, obviously, it has nothing to do with black or white. We're all just as messed up by nature. But it's a tragedy because they're trying to revive the black church. And what the black church needs isn't that. It needs what the white and the yellow and the red and the brown need, the truth. And the last discussion was called this. And you, you, when you see this, it usually brings up red flags. Rethinking hell. That was the title of the discussion. Rethinking hell. And of course, they had one person up there that tried to represent the traditional view, but the poor thing didn't know what it was. Didn't know what the traditional view. Then they had the man all the way on the other side with all of his education who said, if God is the God, if 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 hell is the hell of the Bible, if you literally understand hell to be that, then God is no better than a straight gangster. That's what he called him, a gangbanger. Because he acts like a gangster. The gangster says, you kill me, I'll kill you. And God says, you sin against me, I'll kill you in hell, and I'll kill you more than you can kill me. Brother, that's blasphemous of, of, of the highest order and it's, and it's an evidence of a man who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. You cannot err that much and be a Christian. I'm sorry. And the majority of the people on, on, in the panel were just as bad. And you can just... Well, I wouldn't even encourage you to watch it because it's just a waste of time. But it does sadden me. It, it, it angers me. Lies are not good. They hurt people. But it saddens me exceedingly, especially because I know a few of the people, I don't know them personally, but I know of a few of the people who were speakers, and it saddened me that they were there, frankly. Those in hell have no rest day or night. This means they never have any break from their torments. Those in hell 
have no break when it comes to their torments. Thus, as I've said, we learn the hell of the Bible, the hell of Holy Scripture, the hell as the church has confessed it for the last 2,000 years, generally speaking, is literal, eternal, conscious torment in body and soul. Now, let me stop here before we come to those more happier verses in 12 and 13 and just grapple for a few minutes about this this teaching, the Bible's teaching about hell. What do Christians say or what ought we to say when confronted by others who deny it and or when our own hearts falter at it, waver at it? Not disbelief as much as it's just a very difficult doctrine. Let me put it that way. Brother, I admit it's difficult. It's not, so, it's not difficult in the sense that it's hard to ascertain what the Bible teaches. The, in, in part, the difficulty is the plainness of what the Bible says about it. Brother, there's no, there's no, exegetical, there's no exegetical argument to refute the doctrine that hell is eternal conscious torment. But we have to be honest to say that there is a sense in which it is a difficult doctor, doctrine to ponder. That people will be sustained by God in a place called the outer darkness, wherein they will be by God. Because if you notice, it says uh, at the end of 10, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The doctrine that people will be that a multitude of people millions, billions of people will be sustained for all eternity by God and tormented by God. Because, brethren, who's doing the tormenting here? It's God who's doing the tormenting. God's wrath is that which fuels the flames of hell. Um, Sometimes, and the Bible does talk about um, in First or Second Thessalonians, in the first chapter, it talks about those who will be punished away from the presence of God. But but there we have to understand that to mean there that hell is a place where God is absent with regards to His grace and mercy, right? Because even the wicked experience that in this world. In that sense, the wicked are close to God in this world, though they don't acknowledge it or relish it or adore God for it, but they receive many benefits, many gracious tokens of his kindness, right? The wicked receive that. Jesus said the the rain and the sun fall upon the just and the unjust. But in hell, that's missing. So in that sense, in that sense, they're separate, and, and, and only in that sense are the wicked separated from God in hell, because what makes hell, hell is God's presence. And rather than that is difficult to grapple with. I mean, I think it is. In fact, when I was first a Christian, probably a few months later, I, well, right after I became a Christian, I sent a letter to my mother telling her I had become a Christian. And telling her that she needs to become a Christian and daddy needs to become a Christian. And so she sent me a letter back 
And it basically said something like this. Michael, I'm glad for you. Me and dad are glad for you. We're glad that you have religion. Don't worry about me or dad. We will be okay. And I remember I read that section over again. And I sat on my bed and I just cried. Because I knew that my mom and my dad would not be okay. As much as I wanted to believe it. As much as I tried to do gymnastics to get there where I could be comforted in that. Because my mom and dad are good people, quote unquote. But they won't be okay. And I remember somebody went and told the, uh, the chaplain, he was a, Bruce Adams was his name. He was an Armenian, he was a Wesleyan minister. And he was a good man, though we used to duke it out. We would soon duke it out as I would become more non-Wesleyan and Arminian. And somebody told him, Mike's up crying on his bed. And so he came up, sat with me on the bed, and asked me, what was it? And I shared him the letter, and I told him. And brother, and I'll never forget what he said and did. He didn't pull out his Greek text and try to prove it to me. I, I knew that I was a Christian. I had the Holy Ghost. I knew that hell was real and that it was eternal conscious torment. All he did was put his arm around me, comforted me, prayed with me, and just said, Mike, it is a difficult truth. It is a difficult truth. But let me help you with some thoughts. Well, first of all, and here's the first one. Scripture teaches it. Full stop. Scripture teaches it. See, the problem is, 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 I mean, there are people who try to disprove the doctrine of eternal torments exegetically. But the, but the bulk of people, what they do is, they don't try to disprove it exegetically, but philosophically. They just say, it's not right, it's not fair, it's not the God I know. And then when you show them from the Bible, what do they do? Then they, they, they fall upon this, well, you have to interpret the Bible in the context of its day, like these fools were saying in the video. You have to understand that Jesus got his doctrine from the Old Testament scriptures that got it from the pagan gods. Basically, what they were suggesting is that Jesus' doctrine of hell was satanic. Brother, what a wicked thought. How foolish man is, how far he will go from the truth to run from it. The first thing we have to do when it comes to this truth is we have to simply, firmly, and unashamedly place our feet on the solid rock of God's holy word. If I can't fully get my mind around it or not, the Bible teaches it with absolute clarity. Absolute clarity. But secondly, we can go, we, we stand on the scripture, but secondly, we can say that sinners deserve it. And this is another problem why we by why most people deny the doctrine of hell because they just have never really come to know how sinful sin is. 
And in fact, I hate to keep talking about these, these uh, talks, but they had another talk called What is Sin? Brother, it just was so amazing. It was so shocking and so disgusting to hear their answers. Why can we not just say what the Bible says? Sin is the transgression of God's law. But you know, every one of these dear people started their little talks and their little statements with, I think. Every one of them, with all their education, with all their BAs and this and that and all their doctorates and all of their education. I think, I think, I think. Well, my friend, I really don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. What does the Bible say? And the Bible says that hell torments are eternal conscious torments and that sinners deserve it. And here's why. Because sin is that serious of a matter. Sin is that serious of a matter. And sinners will sin in some sense or another for all eternity and thus their judgments will be equally eternal. It's not that sinners will be sinning in hell like they sinned on earth. Laughing and having a good time, right? That's the misconception of many. I'm going to have one big long party in hell. No, you won't. You'll be tormented. Body and soul. Eternally. Because your heart. Your heart will never willingly and humbly submit to the God who torments you. And I think in part this is what Jesus means when he speaks of the teeth, the teeth gnashing in hell. Gnashing because of the pain but also because of the anger. And the wrath that man has towards the God who punishes him. And then thirdly, the scriptures teach it, sinners deserve it, and God's character demands it. Brethren, it's the very opposite. People say, well, hell, it detracts from God's character. It distorts God's character. That was the argument of the bulk of the people on the panel. The God I know is not like that. Well, that's exactly right, my friend. The God you know isn't the God of the Bible. And that's why. Because God is holy. He is just. But you know what? It's not just God's holiness and justice that are underscored in hell. In another sense, it is his goodness. Because a good judge will always punish evildoers. Brother, it's not a good thing for a judge to, to leave evil unpunished. And one of the most difficult things about hell, and one of the things that this panel hated the, hated the most about hell, is the idea of retribution. Of God paying back with tribulation those who've troubled you. That's how Paul puts it to the Thessalonians. Brother, it is a difficult topic. And it's a topic that we have to handle with great humility and gentleness and understanding. But we have to handle it with, with straightforwardness, with boldness, and with unashamedness. Well, that brings us then to verse 12 and 13. And a voice from heaven. 
These verses contain two parts, a description of saints as, as they were on earth, verse 12, and then as they are in heaven, verse 13. They really form a beautiful contrast to all that's preceded. Just as the wicked worship the beast on earth and have no rest from their torment in hell, stop and think how John does this. Just as the wicked worship the beast on earth and have no rest from their torment in hell, so believers worship God on earth and have eternal rest in heaven. It's a perfect contrast. Notice first verse 12, saints as they are on earth, and then 13, saints as they are in heaven. First, saints as they are on earth. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, by the faith of Jesus, as it's translated in the Old and New King James, is meant their faith in Jesus. And this is how they keep the commandments of God, and this is how they endure to the end. How is it that they endure through all of the things that we've seen? How and why is it that they keep the commandments of God in light of all of the opposition they face? Here's why and how their faith in Jesus Brother, that is a very dense and important theological concept. We endure to the end. We obey the commandments of God by faith in Jesus. How do you become a Christian? Faith in Jesus. How do you in, live like a Christian? Faith in Jesus. How do you endure to the end and be faithful to God through all of the opposition that we face? Faith in Jesus. This is how they are... This is how they were as described on earth. Secondly, verse 13, saints as they are in heaven. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Now this is a verse that's famously and oftentimes read at funerals and brethren rightly so. It pronounces a blessing upon those who die in the Lord. And in the context of the first century, this would, uh, would bring great encouragement, wouldn't it? Because their loved ones are dying every day because of persecution in the Lord. To die in the Lord means to die in Christ. Those who die in Christ are said to rest from their labors. That is their labor for Christ in a fallen world because there's a sense in which they still labor for him in heaven in that they worship him, but they don't do so in the same way they did on earth because they did so on earth. How? With all of the opposition that comes from within and from without and all of the imperfections of people who aren't perfect. So all of our work for Jesus on earth, all of our worship and obedience and all of that is described as labor. Do you remember back in Genesis 2.19 it said after the fall that the woman now would bear babies with pain and men would earn their bread with sweat on their brow. So they labored before, well they, they worked before, let's use that word, the fall, right? The woman made babies and the man worked. But it wasn't labor in that sense. And that it wasn't difficult. And it wasn't opposed. And it didn't necessitate pain and sweat of brow and tears. But then the woman had to labor and the man had to labor with all of that because of the fall. And that's the contrast here. 
And then it says that their works follow them. Notice John says their works follow them. It doesn't proceed them. It's not like our works go before us and make a way and make a way for us in heaven. They follow us. That just means to say that God will remember our labors and he rewards us for them, brethren. All that we do on earth is meaningful. That's what John means by it. They don't precede them as if to imply merit, but they follow him so as to indicate gracious reward. They all follow, brother. Remember what Jesus said. Not one, not one giving of a glass of cold water to my name will be overlooked. All of our works will follow us into heaven. And so we've seen the three messages from the three angels and the voice from heaven that describes both saints as they are on earth and as they are in heaven. Well, we want to stand and close our time by singing hymn 281.